this is Betsy Beers. I'm the executive producer of Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder. And this is Shondaland Revealed, our recently name-changed podcast, which we bring to you every week here from Shondaland. And it's great to be back, you guys. This week, we're super, super, super excited to have one of my all-time favorite human beings and most patient guests in the world in the history of podcasting history, which probably started, you know, in podcasting history, probably like, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe that's when podcasts started. But I'd say in history podcasts, he's probably up there close with the best ever. And that is, of course, your favorite and my favorite, Tony Goldwyn, oh, who's here with me today. Thank you, Betsy. And he's looking lovely. I he's... just got a potty award. You did? You get... <laughs> <laughs> You know, everybody everybody wants a potty. Everybody wants a potty. But you got the, you got the potty. I got it. It's on you my mantelpiece. It's piece. on your mantelpiece. Exactly. Right there with that vase that Ellen gave you. That's right. Okay, so you've got a whole set. Yep. Of stuff that was forced upon you, actually. Mm-hmm. Not even, you, I don't think you even put your name in for the nomination for the potty, and you I got it. But here I am. See, there, there you are. And today, Tony is wearing a really nice sort of gray-green t-shirt. Thank you. Which has got a nice color to it. It's sort of, it's not quite military. It's actually a little more slatey. It's sort of, yeah, brownie, olive-y. Olive-y. You know what brown- it is? It's in the olive family, slady. you guys. It's slatey. I like it's that. It's olive It's slatey olive and he's got a potty. And some nice jeans and some very chic suede boots that are brown. There we go. Which is actually really nice. So welcome. And something which is new now, which you don't know because this is your first time for this season, is I'm going to take a brief period of time, which then sometimes winges into about an hour and a half, and I'm going to recap the other two shows. Oh, So okay. for those of us who didn't get to see all three shows on Thursday nights, because gosh, you guys, I don't know, you may be busy, although I really think the best thing to be doing with your spare time is to be spending all of Thursday night in front of your television with your butt glued to a chair and not moving. But this is the thing, you know, maybe you had an extraordinary circumstance why you weren't sitting there for the entire night. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to give you a little sense as to what the heck went on. Now, Grey's Anatomy, this is episode 1104, which was called Only Mama Knows, which of course is very representative of what the episode is about. Because in this episode, Meredith spends a lot of time flashing back to key moments with her mother, Alice. And she's just trying to make sense of everything. And the theme of this is sometimes you know that memory isn't the most trustworthy thing. It's a pretty subjective thing. By the way, things between Meredith and Derek, tense. It's still tense. He's waiting for her to shine. She's pissed and resentful of the fact that he says, I sacrificed things and I didn't end up going taking the job with the president. And that just makes you sort of annoyed. And that makes her reflect back to her relationship with her mother and just can't stand the idea of living under the weight of Derek's disappointment too. Now, Bailey, in another part of the hospital, is all up in arms when she hears that Maggie's decided to resign. Because we all like Maggie and Maggie's cool. But with this whole thing that happened last week with Richard and Meredith, Maggie's had it. Like, she's kind of done. And Amelia had pushed Derek to talk to Maggie about it. And Maggie finds Finally reveals to him that she's married a sister and he's super pleased because he think it would be really nice for Meredith to have a sister because goodness knows Meredith could use the stable company at this point I think. Weber also tells Meredith that he's not going to talk to Maggie again because she doesn't trust him and then later he yells at Bailey when she suggests that he takes Maggie under his wing to persuade her to stay and then Bailey tries again to talk to Weber and is really psyched to find out that Maggie's actually his daughter. So you're sort of seeing a pattern here, which is everyone's super psyched that Maggie is both related to Meredith and related to Richard. It's Maggie who's having a few problems with this at this point, including Meredith. Uh, Meredith researches Ellis's diary from the time frame when she would have been pregnant with Maggie, and she remembers back to when she, at five years old, had to call 911 after her mother slit her wrists, which is a horrible memory 
and something Meredith then redeals with as she's looking at this journal. Meredith and Alex operate on a 10-year-old with a seven-pound mass in her stomach, and the procedure takes Weber back to an operation he did with Ellis and the time they prepared to leave their spouses for each other. And then Weber later reveals to Meredith that he's responsible for her mother's suicide attempt because he felt he couldn't forge a life with the woman who was already like leaps and bounds ahead of him in her career and that made him feel crappy and he was jealous and he broke it off with her. So finally, you guys, Derek calls a truce with Meredith. It's just kind of because she has a new sister, and that's a good reason. And Meredith's memories of the time surrounding Maggie's birth have come flooding back, and she shares them with Derek. And Derek reminds her she's got to share that kind of stuff with him. Like, they're married, even though they're having problems. We all know what it's like to be in a close relationship with people. You still have to keep trying to make these bonds. So as Maggie leaves for the day, Meredith asks if she can show her something. And she shares Ellis's diary entries from when she would have been pregnant with Maggie. It was clear when she stopped drinking wine and started writing everything down, she ate, that she wanted her baby to be well. That gives something amazing to Maggie as well as the journals that she then takes with her. So that's where we left it. Everything's still kind of not quite right over at the hospital, but I sort of hope personally that Maggie and Meredith are making some progress. And I think actually Meredith went really, really far. And Tony, I'm spoiling everything for you because you may not have seen the episodes yet, in which case you're kind of screwed. Okay, so that's, that's Grey's Anatomy. And before we talk to Tony, which is super exciting, I also want to give you a little recap on how to get away with murder in case you guys missed this one. This episode is actually framed in the Night of the Murder flashbacks, flash forwards really, by Connor. This is the same way we've had Wes and Michaela's point of view. This is now Connor's episode. And he's the framing device for this particular episode. And we start in the murder house and Asher's banging on the door and he knows that they're in there, he knows they're in there. And the kids are all inside and they're trying to stay quiet. And we see Connor confronting the reality of the situation he's in, which is they are very screwed. And as he lays on the floor next to the body, we cut back to present time where Annalise takes Wes off Rebecca's case because he screwed things up by telling her that Griffin was gonna pin the murder on her. And then she confessed when she was coerced. So Annalise demands to know what else they talked about, if anything, and Wes says nothing, honestly nothing. Okay, there's clearly something he's leaving out, which we know he's leaving out, but Annalise doesn't know that yet. Meanwhile, with the students, they're all dealing with this torts thing. They've got a torts class that Michaela is flipping out because they haven't had time to study for. In watching it, Bonnie and Frank look at the students and they sort of pick the one that they think might lose their crap first, and they call it a shooting star. And Michaela's super frustrated because she doesn't know what a shooting star is, and Bonnie and Frank won't tell her, but they pick Michaela as the shooting star, which is irritating. Now, the good news is Annalise has a new client, because Annalise seems to have a ton of clients, and this is Marin Trudeau, who's played by the amazing Elizabeth Perkins, who is awesome, and she's under investigation for insider trading. And essentially, like, she calls Annalise out over her basic distrust of humanity after Annalise sends the law students to hunt for information among her employees in case somebody portrayed her. Marin clearly believes that nobody inside of her organization ever would have done such a thing. Annalise believes that it is true and indeed starts to find evidence that her longtime assistant had something to do with setting the boss up. Going back to the woods, um, we're gonna see that Connor freaks out. We're gonna see Michaela is just not functional and he goes back to Oliver's apartment, and we'll get to that in a second. So essentially, going back and forth in the flashbacks, they have a mess of a situation and nobody's on the same page. Now Nate, you guys remember Nate? Nate is the detective who is not really working very closely with the police at this point. So he's sort of on his own, he's investigating Sam, and he breaks into his car to look past searches on Sam's GPS. 
And Sam appears just as Nate's leaving. Nate creates an excuse, but Bonnie observes the whole thing and then later confronts the police sergeant about Nate continuing to investigate other suspects after they got the confession out of Rebecca. This gets the confession, this gets her to get a copy of the video confession, which is something she's been trying to get from the police. And she essentially blackmails the police. And also, thereby, you guys can probably figure this out, probably screwing Nate up. So Connor, figuring out that there's something going on here with the assistant, uses sex, as Connor does, to get what he wants. And mutually, these two guys, Marin's assistant and Connor, have a steamy encounter by the copying machines. And afterwards, Connor being the clever guy he is, records a conversation that the assistant has with his co-conspirators, which is essentially what it is that busts the entire conspiracy wide open, and that's how we figure out who's been doing what to whom. Connor obviously used sex to get what he wanted, and the bad part of this is after realizing that Connor slept with Marin's assistant, Oliver's tired who being used by Connor and breaks it off with him. The other thing I haven't covered is the fact that as a result of Marin confronting him, her assistant kills himself and throws himself out the window, which essentially leads us to finding out who the other two co-conspirators are in a very clever plan that Annalise and her students hatch to entrap these two into confessing. Meanwhile, back at jail, upon Rebecca's release, Wes asks her again for the code to Lila's phone. He hands the phone over to Annalise, who asks if anybody else knows about the phone, and he says he thinks the pictures will help Rebecca's defense. But Annalise cuts him off. That night, Annalise gets ready for bed. She removes her wig, she removes her lashes, she wipes off her makeup, and then Sam comes home. And he kisses her and he makes small talk. And then she asks him the big question, which is why is there a photo of his penis on a dead girl's phone? which are the big nine words that we've always been waiting throughout this entire episode to find out. So I don't know about you guys, but I can hardly wait till next week. Um, so that leads us to Scandal, which is what you're here to talk about because I'm ruining everything for you on all the other shows, which is great. So this episode of Scandal is kind of, for me, gigantically about Fitz's realization that Jake might have been responsible for the death of his kid. Right. And that that's where this story's sort of heading. And that we know things that Fitz doesn't know. But Fitz is in a crappy-ass situation right now, I think. That's the, the understatement of the year. It is. Like, isn't it? his wife has basically kind of gone a little bit delicate on him. Is that a nice way of putting? Sweet way of putting, yeah. <laughs> of kind of like, we would call him. He can't say that on we'd ABC We'd call it, podcast. dang it, dang it, Melly. We'd call it, screw it, Melly. Friggin' Melly, okay. Friggin' Melly. And then there's Smelly Melly. And Smelly Melly is kind of a slob, and she eats potato chips, and yeah. she's not really doing her job. So you're left without the love of your life, who is behaving in a totally opposite way to what we've known her to be, which is she went off, she came back. There's this whole Jake thing. You're crippled and upset about, obviously, the death of your child and your family sort of falling apart. You're trying to get all these bills passed because you're trying to do your job as president. And then you find out your daughter's basically done this thing which has been raped really. really in a hideous situation has been partying and is clearly upset herself and there's been no parent available to her either i mean this is like super crisis time for fets yeah yeah it's really catastrophic i mean the whole the the revelation of jake i think something clicks for fets when he hears that at the end because he he believes that it's true but especially on the, I think it's so brilliant of Shonda to put this right on the heels of this terrible crisis with Karen. The two worst parental nightmares is first, of course, what happened to Jerry, but second, what happens to Karen in this episode? To find out that your daughter, in acting out in a very extreme way because of her own issues, has gotten herself into a situation where she's been raped, whether she wants to call it that or not herself, yeah. that's what happened. 
you know, and, and, and Fitz is already in a, he holds himself accountable for it completely. Mm -hmm. And Melly is accepting, she's completely abdicated responsibility. So I think Fitz is very alone in this horrible crisis. You know, Olivia helped, came, came through and, and really helped, but their personal relationship is not in a very good place either. So. <laughs> no. no, it's not. It just, it strikes me as how lonely it is. It's yeah. like, because what I think is so interesting about Fitz this season is he's really trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And he's really trying to take this presidency and He's been abandoned by the woman he loves. I mean, and it, it's a kind of mutual situation of what the heck are we gonna do? The death of his child has ripped everything apart, but I have so much respect for the fact that he's still trying to do the job. And I think that's something that he says to Melly at one mm -hmm. point too, which is, look, I'm still trying to do my job and you abdicated your job. Right. And, and what's nice about this, there's a wonderful scene with her and with Karen where I feel like she figures out a way to straddle this line between talking to Karen like she's an adult but also making Karen aware of the fact that she's there, which is, I found incredibly compelling because anything that gets this woman out of this place that she's in is kind of incredible. And I don't know, I think it's it's a lot to dump in a character in the first couple of episodes mm -hmm. of a season. Yeah. You know, Shonda had said to me, she reiterated it at the beginning of this season, that Fitz has, um, has come to realize that in a certain sense he's the devil. When Shonda said that to me, I was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> it's that even though he's, as you said, always believes that he's trying to do the right thing, yeah. he attracts this darkness for some reason. And maybe it's just sitting in the seat of power, but it seems to be throughout his whole life, a guy who was simply as a young man trying to break away from his father's darkness and craziness and do something meaningful with his life. He ended up shooting down <laughs> civilian airliner, you know, then trying to get into politics. If he was going to get into politics, to do it right. And at every turn, really, there's been t terrible uh, destruction and pain caused by it. You know, we found at the end of last season his wife's rape by his own father. Oh, dude. And then finally the death of his son. And then the little relationship with Olivia is all wrapped up in that as being what he thought was his salvation and ultimately is this, again, an engine of destruction on his world. So, you know, now it just keeps piling on poor old Fitz. You know, we're now in episode four and it ain't getting any easier. It doesn't, uh. <laughs> it doesn't look like there's a gigantic upswing coming here. No. It's also, it's now just such a weird situation that the tables have turned with Rowan. I remember that scene between the two of you guys last season where it was pretty much like you confronted Rowan with one of the more definitively strong things you can say to a father about his daughter. That was awful. Yeah, but that was Anyway, <laughs> I did say it. But you know what? Rowan's no piece of cake either. So That's you have to true. fight any with any kind of fire that you have. And I think it's what Olivia says too, which is that, you know, sometimes you have weapons that mm. we each have weapons that mm -hmm. the other one doesn't have. So it was weird and sort of strange to me to see Rowan as kind of a trusted confidant again that was throughout hard this for whole me. project. I, I had to really think that one through. Particularly when I hear this news about Jake, you know, as the person, the audience really, which is what we all are to yeah, start totally. with. You know, it's like, well, why, why, would, why does Fitz, why doesn't he question Rowan? You know, why, why would he trust Rowan? And so it took me a long time to think that through. And the way I look at it, as much as Fitz uh, has a certain contempt for Rowan as a man. He believes, you know, I, I, I as Fitz believe that I was wrong. I was mistaken about Rowan. Um, if you look back to last season, Olivia, who also was very responsible for all of this, at the, at the time when we were trying to destroy Rowan and were convinced that Rowan was the devil, which of course he is, but now I don't know that again, I had him arrested and Olivia got me to um, get Marie Wallace, her mother, Maya Pope out of the country to save poor Maya Pope uh, from the jaws of the terrible 
Rowan, right? And then, you know, Rowan and I have that incredible scene for which Joe Morton won an Emmy, and lo and behold, Olivia got it wrong, and we find out that Maya Pope is the monster. Yeah. And in fact, even though Rowan made a terrible mistake at the time the airliner was shot down, you know, years and years ago, he was right. Do you see what I'm saying? So totally. That, so for Fitz, when Jake was the one who then I appointed as command, disenfranchised Rowan, put him in the wilderness, and then the whole assassination plot happened at the end of last year, where Maya Pope and the syndicate of Russian weirdos were trying to get <laughs> me. And, you know, Jake basically... I gotta tell you something, I always forget about the syndicate of Russian weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> that one had totally skipped my mind, and now it's coming back in a hideous weirdo flood. <laughs> right. So so they were... They, so basically, my whole point is, Jake screwed up. He didn't, you know, catch my Pope, my, right. Marie Wallace. They, they, the church blew up, you know, almost killing Sally Langston and almost losing me the election. And then this terrible catastrophe on, you know, eve of the election where my son was poisoned by my Pope, it seems, so it seemed. On all of that, Rowan has his hands clean, and Fitz, at the end, gets Rowan to yeah. execute Maya Pope. Yep. So Fitz has this really weird relationship with Rowan, where Rowan is, you know, he's a killer. Fitz knows that. He knows what, there's no love lost there, but he's a pro. And so he has executed my son's killer, so I thought, you know, I, I authorized it. You know, and so now for it all to come back and for Tom to confess that it was Jake, suddenly this whole nickel drops with Fitz. Marie Wallace slash Maya Pope, it makes sense that why would she have killed my kid? Jake seized an opportunity to destroy me, destroy my family, and make it possible for him to be with Olivia, you know, and, and to alienate she and I together. And Jake, in my mind, very twisted uh, grab on, on power and on um, his contempt and competitive whatever with Fitz that he must have been harboring for years. And, and Jake is a cold-blooded killer too. Jake killed James. You know, it's like... Well, this, it's, it's not... That was very convoluted. Did it make no, any sense? No, it actually... I'm, <laughs> I'm said. sitting here like riveted, like Tolly and I are both sitting. Holly's our <laughs> producer, you guys. She's great. We're sitting here and literally going, oh my God, this is so complicated and so upsetting. And, you know, it also just occurs to me as you were talking about this, how Rowan, like his daughter, he's the guy you see on the worst day of your life. Mm -hmm. And either he makes it the worst day of your life or he finds these points when you're weak, which is how he works. Mm -hmm. And any father could be forgiven for anything, asking anything after what, you know, you endured with the death mm -hmm. of your son. So you sort of sit and go, that's, Rowan is so smart about those moments. What's interesting is it's like even Harrison figured it out and that got Harrison killed. Right. But... As you said, because you already know that Jake's been responsible for killing people and that's what the job is and that's what B-13 is and we all know it, it all kind of gets gray. I mean, it's like putting whites with blues in your laundry. Any of those scenarios could be plausible and look, there's no way this character can forgive this guy for taking away his girl. There just isn't. Right. And that's all jumbled up in there yeah. for Fitz. You know, it's a very difficult thing because, um, you know, as an actor, it, I know it wasn't Jake. So I have to now convince Fitz that it absolutely was. Otherwise, Fitz is not very, not as smart as he is, as he needs to be. Yeah, and I think Fitz um, is actually very, very bright. Yeah, so, so that's why I had to go through that book. It was very hard to, but, but once I put it together, I was like, oh no, that does, that does make sense. Of course, that's right. And, it, but um, it totally makes sense because it would be one thing what you were doing in this situation was making a pure rational decision, but it's infected by two other things, which then there is no such thing as a pure decision or the right thing because you cannot separate any of that stuff out. No, that's right. 
that's what makes being president so hard because honestly every decision every is an decision, intractable one yeah, is an impossible it's one it's like every single one and i think when yeah. you get used to making those decisions and the other thing Shonda always says actually it's something that we laugh about but it's very true she said part of being in charge of something is seeming decisive it's mm. you are decisive but it's making decisions quickly partially because a decision needs to be made. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there's always a rule, someone once said to me that the most successful people are not people who make the, the highest number of correct decisions. It's the people who make the highest number of decisions, period. To be decisive, to do, and, and, and on balance, if you, you know, decide from your gut about this is what we're doing, on balance, you will come out ahead of the person who deliberates for too long or says, well, I don't know, but if I, you know, it's risk, risk averse all the time. You know, just one other thing back to Fitz's perception of Rowan. In making these decisions, which are as gray as they get, you know, you have to go to motive. And you say, well, what, what's Rowan's motive? What's Rowan's guiding purpose? And I think from Fitz's point of view, it is power to be in control. So that is why where I don't see as Fitz how murdering my son serves Rowan in any way. The part about that I'm underestimating Rowan is, you know, the thing he said at the end of last season. He took my child. Yeah. I'm going to take his. I don't. I don't think Fitz would imagine that. No. For Rowan. I think he sees Rowan as an absolutely cold-hearted wielder of power who has clearly sacrificed his daughter. I mean, from Fitz's point of view, Rowan has been an abominable father. Oh. You know, and has been done nothing but caused Olivia pain. So I don't think he believes that Rowan has any attachment over Olivia other than as a piece of property, which I think is actually true. I think but that's it's a very really... complicated and tangled. <laughs> oh, it's so complicated and mm. tangled. And I'm just amazed at the layers of the stuff and how it just keeps peeling The back. other thing that happens in this episode that's so, I felt so tragic for Fitz, which keeps happening, you know, he keeps getting whipsawed emotionally, is that great scene with Olivia. She's helped me with Karen, or is helping me with Karen, and I once again throw myself at her and profess my love for her and force her to acknowledge that we are unavoidable after, up to that point, having made a hard policy for myself that my attraction to this human being, my compulsion to this human being is an engine of darkness and evil. Is what I was saying earlier in the conversation. You know that Fitz had always believed that Olivia was the light. And I think in the wake of Jerry's death, but much more importantly, in the wake of her departure, you know, he doesn't know it's with Jake yet, but you know, when she left and why he ended up trying to commit suicide was the realization that that thing which he thought was Vermont and the light and his salvation was in fact this ironic a karmic joke on him mm-hmm. that every time he went to that impulse, something terrible happened. So in other words, this is what Shonda was saying earlier. You know, he views Olivia truly as kryptonite. And so then, so he's pushing it away, pushing it away, pushing it away, and he can't. And then in this episode, you know, he finally says, what, she, he says to her, what's the point? I, I tried, I, he doesn't quite tell her that he tried to kill himself, but he says, I almost died when, because I lost you. Don't ever do that again. What, we can't resist. And I say to her, well, you know, what is the point? Why mm-hmm. we can't resist this anymore? And, it, and then she tells me that she ran off with Jake. That's just another knife in the heart for Fitz. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a really big episode for him. And it's it's gigantic, and it's like Tom. Tom was Fitz's guy. Oh, my God, that like too. Tom, like... The guy, the one guy I could trust. Dude, you know, Tom it's just like the wheels dude. are coming off the freaking bus. Yeah, yeah. Somehow or another, Fitz continues to manage to be president, to do his job, to try to take care of his family, to be both mother and father, 
I mean, Teddy, what the heck's going on with Teddy? Where's Teddy? Where's Teddy's, Teddy? I hope Teddy has a good nanny. I hope Teddy's got nanny, a really good nanny. Nanny, what do I call her? Right I, I have a call. I, she has a name. You know, when I'm yelling at Melly, I, I say know, that to her. I know, I totally remember what you're saying. It's so you think Jenny, about... Nanny, J, nanny Jenny. Or, Jenny. Yeah. It's Jenny. Oh, my God. Nanny Jen, mommy. It's terrible. Terrible. So sad. It is, but I'm glad Jenny's a really good nanny. Jenny's a damn good nanny. I'm, I'm looking, I'm just, I'm just looking. I think you need to give, I think next episode we need to give Jenny a raise. She's getting a raise and she's going to get help, really good health healthcare, not just, you know. Standard you know. health care. I think we need to buck up the she's dental. She's going to get Fitzcare. Fitzcare. Yeah. Fitzcare is even better. <laughs> I think Fitzcare is absolutely awesome. <laughs> I, think, I think that works totally, totally well. Well, I personally, as a viewer and fan, I want Fitz to get a break and have something amazingly nice happen. I'm not sure that's happening. I do too. I don't see it in the cards. <laughs> but, but you never know. And but. What, what, what the heck do I know about that? It's, uh, but it is, and I think, I just, I feel like he's proven himself to be much more resilient and stronger than I ever would have thought. And mm -hmm. also given, what's with that suicide attempt? What do we know about that? We as the audience don't know much. I mean, I, I've decided for myself, I, I see it as having happened, you know, Bellamy and I were talking about it, that it happened a couple of weeks after Jerry's death, after the election. And we had, Karen had stayed with us through Thanksgiving, I think, and we sent her back to school. You know, like I say to Olivia, I thought sending her back to school was the right thing, get her normalized as soon as possible. And I think when she got out of the house and Fitz was faced with the fact that Olivia had disappeared and was nowhere to be found, and his son was dead, at his, he sees it as, as at his hands in a weird way. Oh, because if he hadn't been in the job. If he hadn't been in the job, if he had not been with Olivia, if he had not been all this complex sure, web of sure. things, you know, in this job that he was sort of thrust into by his father who raped his wife, it was like all of it. It's like he sees himself as being this you engine guys, of darkness. You guys, this is not a musical. I'm so he, he, yeah, the musical episode of Scandal is going to have to wait. <laughs> it just got so dark that he wanted to exit stage left. And then Melly, I think, went off on him and said, you cannot leave me alone with this mess. And she held him up. And then when he got on his feet, then she fell off, you know, which is where we meet her at the beginning of the season. Yeah. No, and there's even that really sweet scene from the, I think it's last week's episode. She finally gets interested in something. It's the... Oh, God, and she humiliates herself. And she humiliates herself in front of everybody. Yeah. And, and it's expression on your face where you actually, you love her and you feel for her and right. you feel all the pain in that moment. And this, it's like weirdly one of my two favorite moments of that episode were you walking in the room and looking at all these guys and going, hey, Bill, <laughs> what's going hey, on? Jack, what's going <laughs> I on? I love that. And Gabby, a.k.a. Abby, saying, mm -hmm. do you remember I told you about this? And then that sort of crushing moment where she actually tries, she actually mm -hmm. tries to do it. And it's Yeah, uh, we have this weird thing that Melly and I, uh, that, that I love what Shonda does, is we turn 180 degrees without any transition or excuse. You know, like we will literally be ready to kill each other. And then in another minute, we're being totally um, taking care of one another or loving as one does in a marriage. You know, so I was about to say to me, that's what a long-term marriage is, is too. It's because you're family. You're a family and you kind of know the rocks in your head fit the holes in hers. That's exactly right. And no matter what it is, you kind yeah. of continue to go, all right, we're in this together. So I may be super, super pissed at you, but we still got to function. And you just do. It's complicated. But I really love that... Uh, we do that on Scandal. It feels very lifelike, you know, as opposed to going, oh, well, now he's being nice to Melly because let's, we have to justify that. It's like, no. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, a lot of people actually did ask about the suicide attempt, and I think we've talked some about that. Claire wants to know, <laughs> in Feed Up 2014, who keeps after the Olitz house in Vermont? 
That's a really good question. Isn't it? I'm sort of curious about that too, because I was thinking about it as a vacation spot over Christmas. It'd be a nice one. It would be really um, nice. I think that Fitz is a caretaker. I don't think he keeps a full-time staff there. I think he's hired someone who's been vetted by the Secret Service and all that. Probably stays there and mows the lawns and stuff. Mows the lawn, takes care of it, goes and makes sure that the pipes don't freeze. Yeah. And that it's ready in a moment's notice that it could be dusted off and uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm, I'm applying for that job. I think <laughs> be that's a nice job. It'd be a nice, not such a bad job, right? No, exactly. I mean, kind of a staycation thing. Yep. I think that's a really good answer. Now I'm really happy about the house because I was worried about the pipes in winter. It's Vermont. Yep. It's cold. They're sugaring up with maple syrup around the exactly corner. Exactly right. It's yep. all a thing. So mm -hmm. that's that's excellent. Um, Sarah wants to know at Cosette Yo, what's the biggest challenge for you as an actor this season regarding your character? Or did we just cover that? We kind of covered it. I mean, it's the complexity of, you know, Fitz is in such an extreme state date all the time he's dealing with so much crap that it's very it's very easily tangled up in my head and so in order to be a reasonably respectable actor I have to constantly untangle all that stuff and make sure I, I, I really know what I'm talking about. Totally. <laughs> okay so every single one of these we have to ask a question from Bobblehead Lives because Bobblehead Lives just always asks the best questions. Let's have the best Twitter handle. Bobblehead, Bobblehead Lives. Bobblehead Lives is, is pretty great. Okay so you're the mastermind of Clue. Who do you kill, in what room, and with what weapon? Well, not remotely being the mastermind of Clue and having not played Clue for decades. I'm really I'm sorry, voting, Bobblehead Lives. I'm voting Colonel Mustard, Candlestick, Drawing Room. Okay. Library. I'll say um, the butler with a butcher knife um, <laughs> in the garden. I think there was a Miss Scarlet, oh. too. Was there? Okay. Oh, I'm going to go good. for a Miss Scarlet. Go, go Miss Scarlet. I'm Miss Scarlet. Okay. I'm, sorry. I'm staying I with the candlestick. It's okay. It's yeah. all right. It's Bobblehead every once while. Bobblehead? We're sorry, we haven't played Clue really recently. A lot of us play Scrabble words with friends and mm -hmm. Scrabble, so I think that's been taking up a lot of time. But this has now got me curious to go back to my Scrabble game and see what the heck's the going clue on. The Clue game, yes. Um, Lizzie at Liz Criola wants to know, has writing crossed your mind? Do you write? I, I, you know, Lizzie, I don't. The only thing I've actually written was I rewrote a draft of The Last Kiss, which was a movie I directed. Um, but it was the, Paul Haggis had written the first draft and I rewrote Paul's script, sort of because I knew sort of what I wanted to do with it. But I know, because I, I always work with such great writers as a director that I often find I'm better actually being kind of like an actor. So I'll improvise for them and say, this is what I want to feel like it should be and we'll riff together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then in terms of putting the pen to paper, I just think I work with people who are more talented than I would ever be at that. So I've not yet, I mean, necessity forces you to do stuff like I think, you know, so someday there yes. may be a gun to my head and I just have to do it. But because I've been lucky enough to work with great writers, I, I function more as an editor. I always felt too in my job because people have said, you must write, blah, blah, blah. And I always sort of felt like there was no reason the world needed one more mm -hmm. writer. I you know, that sound, because that's what would come out of my electric typewriter. So, and it was not, it was one something I think you really want to, to be a really good writer, you, you have to write, you have to yeah. need to write. And if that's you don't right. need to yeah. write, golly I Moses, feel like, it's a lot of trouble. But I often feel like my role is like being a writer whisperer. <laughs> yes, me too. Exactly. I, you know what I mean? It's like, what about this? And then a writer goes, wait, I got it. Okay. Yeah, it's great. And then they go and do something brilliant and you go, well, that's 10 times better than what I was thinking, but. No, exactly. It's like, you know, give them the matches yeah, and show them right. where the fireplace is yep. and they can light the fire yeah. and then everybody stays warm. Aquarius Gal Kim at K Petkovic wants to know, who directs you, Tony, when you're directing Scandal and acting too? I really, the secret weapon on Scandal is Tom Verica. Whenever I do a difficult scene that I'm not quite sure of, I always ask Tom to come down and watch. And he invariably gives me really helpful comments. Directing myself is not as hard as one would think. 
because they tend to have a sense of what the whole scene is supposed to be. So I can kind of tell when I'm right or, or on the right track or not. But uh, Tom is just, he's a brilliant director and, and also a wonderful actor, obviously. And I, so I really, I view him as a secret weapon. Tom Verick is phenomenal, ladies and gentlemen. Please don't forget to watch him on How to Get Away with exactly. Murder, 10 o'clock so on ABC on Thursday nights. Good and How to Get Away with Murder. He's, I love he's, his work he's really, that. really good. And he does, he really, because Tom is the producing director, Tom is sort of the last stop. He's sort of the go-to guy yeah. for, and he makes sure the tone is good and then everyone's being taken care of and he helps the guest directors and I know you guys have a really close working relationship yeah, and it's it's worked you know incredibly well and I think um but just I I will tell you guys Tony directs his episodes there's it's, he's an amazing director the stuff the work that he's done for us on all of our shows almost I don't think you've done Grace Grace is right Wait great no, no, I'm sorry and it was called Damage Control I did two I did one in the very first season and then I did one in the second season. I did the one, was it Damage Control? Damage with, Control. Which was the original name of this? Yes, of that's right. Hence the irony. Yes, it was the third episode of It was the third Grace. episode. It was when the bicycle, was, yes. the guy got the spokes. Yes, the in spokes his and the thingies. Thingy. And then I directed the one in the second season where the pregnant woman came in. She'd been in a car accident. And you also directed one of the first episodes of Private Practice. I did, that's right. So you actually have done the trifecta. I have done the trifecta. So we should probably be aiming for the quartet at some point. the quartet sometimes. And my feeling too is if Tom Verrick is acting on that damn show, That's right. it seems to me like you could direct it. it. Exactly. <laughs> um, Tina from Tina1122 wants to know, what kind of relationship advice would you give Fitz and Liv if they were your friends? <laughs> me? And this would you. not be good advice. You. Hang in there. I love you, Tony Goldwyn. That's the best. That would be my advice. Hang in there. And then finally, Elizia Liz Criola wants to know, what is your number one in your bucket list? It's kind of like working on Scandal. <laughs> I find the surprises of life the best. So I don't have those kinds of lists. I kind of have what I like to do and pursue and work at and then not know, you know, you never know what's going to happen to you. So I'm saying it's like Scandal. Like we never know where this show is going to go. And I never look at Scandal and go, oh, I bet Fitz is going to do this <laughs> or that's going to happen. or I hope this happens because that would be so great. I, I really love the roller coaster ride of it. And um, I take the same attitude towards life. Well, then it's it's that whole thing of if you actually, the first rule of improvisation is you always say yes. You always say yes. And right. if you actually, and it's something I've been practicing a little bit because my first go-to is no because I think part of my time is spent managing and taking care of other situations right more and more I'm realizing I think you're absolutely right which is the more you actually say yes to things the more you actually either on a daily basis face your fears or not even face fears like allow yourself to enjoy things the need for the bucket list kind of goes away yeah. a little bit because mm -hmm. you don't get to a particular point and think I've always wanted to solo sail around the world and I never did it maybe you did something that served that purpose which is kind of impressive if you yeah can. or sometimes you'll find yourself on a boat sailing around the world going, wait a minute, how, how did, did I, I get, get here? here? I remember I used to think about something like this. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, uh, which is always incredible. <laughs> Look, thank you so much for doing this, Tony. I know you're so super much busy. It's fun. I love doing and, scandal. Um, no, I also, Shondaland Revealed, not Scandal Revealed anymore. Shondaland, I know, because we're, we're, we're a little expanding thing here, which, is, right. which is great. And also, congratulations on all your work with The Innocence Project, which I know is Thank near you. and dear to your heart. Thank you. to my heart. Your amazing, fine television show, The Divide. Thank you, which we're praying for a second season. You guys. And to all of you who listen, who've been supporting The Divide, you guys, I'm so grateful to you. Listen, listen to Tony and keep supporting it and, you know, harassing that particular network might That's not right. hurt. 
Um, all of that is terrific, but thanks thanks again, because honestly, it means a lot for you to show up and spend part of your, your busy afternoon. We're going to be back next week with um, a brand new podcast with a human being yet to be determined, <laughs> but I guarantee it will be a person. They will speak about something, and I'm sure it will be riveting and fascinating for all <laughs> you guys. Please remember next week that we are going to have a new Grey's Anatomy, a new scandal, and a new How to Get Away with Murder on Thursday night at ABC. You can follow us with Twitter and Facebook. And for those of us who have old-fashioned computers, abc.com, which is a fine, fine website in its own right. Um, and it's always good to find things and check things out. You can also find out if you've missed an episode, the best way to actually get to catch up on it. A lot of you guys have asked me that question, and you can go online and find out more about that. This has been really, really fun. Don't forget to watch next Next week, don't forget, get your popcorn ready, get your beverage of choice. Mine might be a flagon of some sort of alcohol. We don't have to get specific about that now. Have a really safe week. This is Betsy Beers. I'm executive producer of Grey's Anatomy Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder, saying thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>